15 years, you guys. Yeah. Uh, spent time reflecting this week. 275 people have been baptized into Jesus since we started as a church. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, why? Because we exist to reach the world for Jesus one person at a time. Now, in the midst of that, uh, I think it is fitting that we sang Highlands. that talks about valleys and mountaintops. And in the midst of the valleys and mountaintops, that God is still the same. His love for us endures. And we have reason to always worship Him and praise Him, no matter what we see in front of us, no matter what mountain we're facing, no matter difficulty that we experience, uh, Jesus is worthy of our worship. And today we're going to start a new sermon series called Life in Babylon. And one of the things that you need to know about uh, this series, it's really built around helping us understand uh, that the culture around us is changing. And how do we as Jesus' church remain faithful as a church faces adversity in the culture that we experience. I remember just 15 years ago, wasn't very long ago, uh, how much things have changed in regards to, to culture. Uh, I've seen the church uh, move from a place where the Christian faith was celebrated and then move to a place where it eventually was tolerated to now something that's treated oftentimes with hostility. Um, you see it even in our own community that's actually a very supportive community when it comes to faith. Um, but we're seeing it across the nation where people are experiencing um, hostility in ways that we haven't seen in a really long time. Uh, the other reality is, is when it comes to the church as a whole, for us, we believe that we're going to reach the world for Jesus 1% of the time, that Jesus called us to that. And the way that that's actually going to be played out is by creating biblical disciples in relational environments, doing what Jesus called us to do, to go and make disciples, but to do it actually his way, where we're in relationship with one another, um, real relationship, not just um, church relationship that often becomes superficial, but actually deep abiding relationship with one another, where we walk together in life with one another. Even though for us, our focus as a church is discipleship, it is um, fascinating to look and see how discipleship is going in America. Uh, the new statistics say that about 1.2 million people are leaving the church every single year in America. 1.2 million people. 70% of the church, of people in the church are still leaving the church after high school. And what I'm reminded of in the midst of watching the culture change and watching it um, change around us in a really short amount of time, if you think about 15 years, is not a long time. But I think we've all experienced how much culture has changed in the last 15 years. How do we walk faithfully in the midst of hostility? How do we walk in dependence in, on God in the midst of um, all the things that are changing? I was reminded of a story this week by John Tyson. He shares this story. If any of you guys are big history nuts, I love history. Because there's so much for us to learn in the midst of history. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, ever heard of the guy? Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor in Germany, and he was disillusioned with the German church because they continued to surrender to the Nazi regime. Not surrender in the sense of like, okay, like we'll, we'll, we'll go to prison. No, they were actually taking on Hitler's ideas to where Dietrich Bonhoeffer knew the evil that was taking place and chose to, to resist that evil and chose to actually start his own seminary. 
And as he was starting this seminary, making disciples, helping to bring salt and light, um, it became rather rigorous, rather intense. And some of his friends actually became skeptical to the point that they actually called him aside and said, we're actually worried about you. This seems rather intense with what you're, what you're doing and how you're navigating things. Like, we're concerned for you. And I love the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer as he took them up to a hill nearby. And up on this hill, you could look across and see the training camp in the distance of the Nazis. And as they sat and watched this training camp, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said something pretty amazing. In regards to the defense of what he was actually doing, he said this, this must be stronger than that. This, what we're doing, must be stronger than that. And as I hear that story, it feels as if culture that's becoming resistant to Christianity is growing. There's that calling from Dietrich Bonhoeffer from within me to say, whatever we do as a church, it must be stronger than whatever is out there. Would you agree with that this morning, church? And there's no better way for us to actually do that than to go back and ask the question, where in the time of God's people were people faithful in the midst of a culture that was becoming resistant? And the reality of it is we've got heroes that we can look to We've got heroes of the faith that, that endured way more than we have endured so far in our generation and yet still remain faithful and God used them in an amazing, amazing way. And the heart of this sermon series is to ask that question, how do God's people lead themselves and the people around them in the midst of great hostility? Well, what is it like to live life in Babylon? And that's the question we're going to be wrestling with over the next couple of weeks as we look at these heroes of the faith that walked out their faith in tremendous ways. Now, there's lots of different conversation right now in regards to how do we lead ourselves and the people around us in the midst of a culture that's changing and becoming more hostile to our faith. Um, the answer may be this, this graphic. It says, well, we, we need to separate completely from culture. Separate, which God's people have done over the years. And then there's syncretism, the idea that we need to affirm culture and actually blend maybe our faith and what's going on with culture. And I would argue that both of these are actually wrong in and of themselves. Another way to put it is this next graphic is uh, maybe we need to affirm or on the other side, we need to hate. And whether we use the term syncretism or whether we use affirmation or whether we use hate or separation, I would argue that both of these in and of themselves are Wanting, But it's when we recognize those things, it's actually in the middle where we find what real exile looks like in the midst of Babylon. How do we walk as exiles? How do we walk in the midst of the culture that we find ourselves in? Today, we're telling a story, reading the story of my favorite Old Testament character. His name's Josiah. Everybody say Josiah. Josiah's my favorite Old Testament character. I wanted to name my firstborn Josiah, but uh, my wife said, mm, ain't happening, okay? <laughs> so we settled on Noah together, which is a great first name uh, for a firstborn. Uh, but Josiah has been my favorite of the Old Testament for a really long time. In the story of jo Josiah, it's actually pre-Babylon, meaning it's before God's people are sent into captivity. It's a story of a complete miracle and a story of revival. Everybody say revival this morning. 
It's during the year 640 to 609 that, that Josiah is the king of Judah. And just to give you an idea in regards to what Josiah is stepping into as he's leading, there's 90 years that have gone by with no model of godly leadership. 400 years since the people of God have probably honored the Lord in their rhythms. He becomes king at eight years old, which tells you the state of leadership when it comes to Judah and God's people. Eight years old. Nobody eight years old should be leading a nation. Okay? But he's put in leadership. But then things begin to change as he grows older. The nation of Judah is in the midst of great difficulty, not walking faithfully with the Lord. And 2 Chronicles chapter 34 says this, that Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. He did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight and followed the example of his ancestor David. He did not turn away from doing what was right. And during the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, Josiah began to seek the God of his ancestor David. And then in the 12th year, he began to purify Judah and Jerusalem, destroying all the pagan shrines, the Asherah poles, and the carved idols and cast images. He ordered that the altars of Baal be demolished and that the incense altars which stood above them be broken down. He also made sure that the Asherah poles, the carved idols, and the cast images were smashed and scattered over the graves of those who'd sacrificed to them. He burned the bones of the pagan priests on their altar, so he purified Judah and Jerusalem. And he did the same thing in the towns of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, even as far as Naphtali, and in the regions all around them. He destroyed the pagan altars and the Asherah and he crushed idols into dust. He cut down all the incense altars through the land of Israel. Finally, he returned to Jerusalem. If there's anything that we can learn from Josiah, it's the reality that he was willing to tear down the high places. What are these high places? Um, places where idolatrous worship took place. Worshiping other gods apart from the one true God, Yahweh. And as he tore down these high places, I want you to just reflect as we go on the journey of Josiah. We're going to cover a lot of ground this morning in regards to Josiah's life. And as we look at Josiah and what he did, I'm asking you to reflect on your own life. And ask the question, what does it look like to mirror and walk in the ways of Josiah? And tearing down the high places of your own heart. Where are the idols in your own heart where you choose to trust things apart from the Lord? And are you willing to actually address those things? Are you actually willing to say, Lord, I need help with my sin problem, with our own heart, with my own heart. Where does sin reign in my life? And who are you, as we talked about in this last sermon series, in real relationship with, who are you willing to confess sin to? Do you have that type of relationship? In the church, where you have the ability to say, I know this person will love me, shepherd me, walk beside me, tell me the truth, challenge me in the midst of walking in godliness. Where are the high places in my own heart, the idolatry sin in my own heart that I need to address? And I want to tell you that as a pastor of this church, in the midst of the high mountaintops and the valleys, in the midst of the difficulty that sometimes we find ourselves in as a church, as a pastor, I'm reminded over and over and over again why I keep doing what I'm doing after 19 years of being a pastor. Why? This last week I got to sit down with a young man who a year and a half ago, I would argue, is in the midst of losing a lot in his life. 
He had hid addiction from his wife for years. And finally, with the gift of the Holy Spirit through his wife, was confronted with that reality. And in the midst of that, there's a lot of different things that he could have chose, but what he chose to do is to surrender. What he chose to do was to share the truth of what he's actually been wrestling with in the midst of sin. And as he began to confess, and as he began to be open, and as he began to be honest about the reality of things that were going on in his heart, there were a group of people that God surrounded him with and began to walk beside him day after day, week after week, month after month. And we're a year and a half later. And as I sat and had coffee with him this year, or this week, I was blown away with the reality of how God has brought wholeness into his life. Wholeness, because he was willing to surrender to the Holy Spirit, to listen to the Holy Spirit, to be obedient to what God has called him to, and as now we're in the process of talking to him about what does it look like to be a person of influence in our church. You guys, as a pastor who gets to meet with people, when I hear these types of stories, I'm reminded of the calling that Jesus said when he called and he said, listen, Justin, you can do all sorts of different, different things, but what are you going to do in moving my church forward? It's these stories that continue to move us forward as a church. People's lives are being radically transformed. People that are willing to address the high places in their own hearts and are willing to lean in what God has for them. What else did Josiah do? Verse 10, chapter 34, he says this, that he then later on entrusted money to the men assigned to supervise the restoration of the Lord's temple. At this moment, Lord's temple is in devastation. It hasn't been taken care of. The priests have not done their job, and Josiah recognizes it. He paid the workers who did the repairs and renovation of the temple. They hired carpenters and builders who purchased and finished stone for the walls and timber for the rafters and beams. They restored what earlier kings of Judah had allowed to fall into ruin. What does Josiah do? He repairs temple worship. He repairs temple worship. He begins to do a work in the temple so that the people of God could begin the process of coming back to what they were supposed to do, which was to worship the Lord. And I want to ask you this morning, when it comes to your own personal worship, when it comes to corporate worship, where do you worship outside of Sunday? We are going to do our best to make sure that we have a nice place to worship here. And in fact, we had a women's conference this week, and we had a bunch of women here that were learning about Jesus and learning about the scriptures. And what I was told is it was amazing. But all the people that, I, I poked my head in just for a little bit because it was a women's conference, just poked my head in, just said, hey, how's it going? And they're like, it's amazing. It's going so well. This place is amazing. It's beautiful. I go, so, I go thank you. I go, but here's the thing. It's the people that make this place amazing. Amen. And for us as God's people, we're called to be a people that ask the question, what am I worshiping? What am I seeking? Not just on Sunday morning, but all throughout the week. What does it look like for you to be a person that chooses to worship Jesus with everything that you have, not just on Sundays, but all week long? And with that being said, it does start with, with Sunday. How do you approach Sunday? I appreciate Sean Pruitt, who's a pastor. He says this about are you experiencing God on Sunday? This is Twitter. It says, want to change your worship experience at church? Pray before you get there. Ask God to speak to you. Listen to worship music on the way. Take a Bible with you instead of relying on the screens. You know what I've noticed? Is even if you're fighting with your family on Sunday morning on the way to church, 
You guys do that, right? I mean, we all do at one point, right? Let's be honest. But in the midst of whatever difficulty you're finding as a family, if you are willing to prioritize Jesus in the midst of the difficulty, it's amazing how the Holy Spirit begins to show up and speak to us in powerful, powerful ways. What would it look like in the midst of difficulty with your family of choosing to be a person to worship Jesus all throughout the week, but even on Sunday morning, prioritizing, preparing for him to speak to you on Sunday morning, what would God do? Take a bow with you instead of relying on the screens. Don't run late. Be the first ones here. Here's what I know. There's always room in the front row. Penny, you're my person. Always in the front row. Waiting, yearning to want to be with Jesus, to hear him speak to you as you sing loudly like you mean it. Take notes. Expect God to move. Josiah repairs the temple worship. Why? Because God was worthy of it. And number two, it was the way to prepare the people to gear their hearts back to him. And so Josiah repairs the temple worship. And in the midst of them repairing the temple worship, this, this, this next part of Josiah just absolutely is mind-boggling to me. Verse 14, while they were bringing out the money collected at the Lord's temple, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord that was written by Moses. He found it. Meaning it was lost. Imagine coming to Real Life Ministries and me standing up here and be like, oh, by the way, I found a Bible this week, you guys. <laughs> this shows the state of God's people and where their hearts had gone so far away from the Lord. They find the book of the law. I found the book of the law in the Lord's temple. Hilkiah the, gave the scroll to Shaphan. Shaphan took the scroll to the king and reported, Your officials are doing everything they were assigned to do. The money that was collected at the temple of the Lord has been turned over to the supervisors and workmen. Shaphan also told the king, Hilkiah the priest was, has given me a scroll. And so they read it to the king. And when the king heard that was written in the law, he tore his clothes in despair. He tore his clothes in despair. Why? Because even as he began to focus on honoring the Lord, he became aware of the bigger gap of realizing we have fallen so short of what God intended for us. But Josiah was willing to rediscover and actually obey his word. What is the tearing of the clothes? It's a sign of, of grief and remorse unto the Lord. He discovers and obeys God's word. And so let me ask you, what does it look like for you every week to have a heart that yearns and longs to rediscover and obey God's word in your life? What role does God's word play in your life? Do you only read God's word when you come to church? Or are you a disciple of Jesus who's learning to rediscover and obey over and over and over and over again? Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite pastors, partially because he preached great sermons, but he also enjoyed a cigar every now and then. Please forgive me if that's something you don't appreciate. But he said, when asked, what is more important, prayer or reading the Bible? And I asked, what is more important, breathing in or breathing out? 
And what the people of Judah had forgotten was that God's word was an ability for us to breathe in and breathe out. They had learned to function apart from God. They had learned to actually function apart from the things that would actually bring them life. And Josiah was willing to learn how to breathe in and breathe out with God's word and God's law. It goes on to say, verse 25, for my people have abandoned me and offered sacrifices to pagan gods, and I am very angry with them for everything they have done. God said, my anger will be poured out on this place and it will be quenched. It will not be quenched. But go to the king of Judah who sent you to seek the Lord and tell him, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says concerning the message you have just heard. You were sorry and you humbled yourself before God. When you heard his words against the city and its people, you humbled yourself and you tore your clothing in despair and you wept before me in repentance and I have indeed heard you, says the Lord. So I will not send the promised disaster until after you've died and been buried in peace. You yourself will not see the disaster I'm going to bring on this city and its people. So they took her message back to the king. It's amazing what repentance does. It's amazing what repentance does, not only in my heart, not only in the hearts of those around me, but it's amazing in regards to our relationship with the Lord when we choose to actually be a people that when we don't walk the path of hearing, observing, reflecting, discussing, and eventually obeying, that if we're willing to then surrender and obey and walk in repentance, it's amazing what amazing things happen with God and his people. As God says, this disaster that I talked about, I am going to delay that. Verse 1, chapter 35, goes on to say, Josiah announced that the Passover of the Lord would be celebrated in Jerusalem. And so the Passover lamb was slaughtered on the 14th day of the first month. And Josiah also assigned the priests to their duties and encouraged them in their work at the temple of the Lord. He issued this order to the Levites who were to teach all of Israel who had been set apart to serve the Lord. They put the holy ark in the temple that was built by Solomon, son of David, the king of Israel. You no longer need to carry it back and forth on your shoulders. Now spend your time serving the Lord, your God, and his people Israel. Report for duty according to family divisions of your ancestors, following the directions of King David of Israel and the directions of his son Solomon. Stand in the sanctuary at the place appointed for your family division. And help the families assigned to you as they bring their offerings to the temple. Slaughter the Passover lamb. Purify themselves and prepare to help those who come. Follow all the directions that the Lord gave through Moses. And then verse 16, it says this, after the Passover. The entire ceremony for the Lord's Passover was completed that day. And all the burnt offerings were sacrificed on the altar of the Lord as King Josiah had commanded. And all the Israelites present in Jerusalem celebrated Passover and the festival of unleavened bread for seven days. Never since the time of the prophet Samuel had there been such a Passover. But Josiah was committed to helping the people recognize that it was God's faithfulness through all the difficulty that God actually restored them out of Egypt and brought them to the land flowing with milk and honey. What did he do? He restores Passover. But it's so much more than just Passover. He's restoring a sacred rhythm. He's restoring the ability to people to understand this is who you are because this is what God has done for you. Second Kings says this about Josiah. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all his heart. Everybody say heart. 
with all his soul, say soul, and with all his strength, say strength, in accordance with the law of Moses. Doesn't that sound familiar? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. What do we learn? God starts revival when his people are surrendered. God starts revival when his people are surrendered. And so we have to ask ourselves in the midst of culture changing, in the midst of things changing all around us, are we willing to be a people that are completely surrendered over and over and over again? And it's a surrendered people that are committed to the seeds of revival as exiles in Babylon. You have to believe that revival will come. Whether it's in your generation, the next generation, or the generation to come, you have to be willing to say, my God is worthy of worship. My God is worthy to be committed to, no matter what changes around me. And if any of us, if you want revival, you must be personally committed to the seeds of revival. You have to be committed if we're going to experience all the things that God has for us, we have to be a people that are committed to doing the things that lead to revival, whether that happens now or in the future. I wish that the rest of the story in regards to Josiah, this amazing revival that took place during Josiah's generation, I, I wish if I, if I were to be the one to tell the story, if I were to be the one to say this is how it's going to play out, is that there would be complete surrender, not only in Josiah's generation, but every generation after that. It was happily ever, ever ending, that type of ending that I would want to experience. Wasn't that what you want to experience? That's what you would think would happen. But it doesn't happen. Verse 15 and 36, The Lord, the God of the answers, repeatedly sent his prophets to warn Judah, for he had compassion on his people and his temple. But the people mocked these messengers of God and despised their words. And they scoffed at the prophets until the Lord's anger could no longer be restrained and nothing could be done. God wouldn't surrender. But his people, after Josiah, were not willing to be surrendered. Sounds depressing. Depressing. And to a certain extent, it is. It's heartbreaking. But in the midst of this, what we also learn is something pretty profound. Uh, I don't have any of these flowers, but I'm thinking about actually figuring out how to grow them. This is a sacred lotus. Isn't that beautiful? What I learned this week about this flower and why I want it is because some people estimate... that the sacred lotus can lay dormant from anywhere from 200 to 1,000 years before full germination takes place. Don't really know because no one's actually tested it. <laughs> but it's the, it's, it's the longest lasting germination seed that they know of. And the seed actually almost looks like a walnut. 200 to 1,000 years before it fully blooms. And in the midst of Josiah, we might be saying, man, well, that, there was, you know, a little bit of revival. But eventually, like, it just went away. And we can see it that way, or we can actually see it from a different perspective. That in the midst of walking faithfully in a culture that was hostile to them, 
only lasted for a generation, or we could look at it from a different perspective. Do you realize that the first generation, the second generation after Josiah, who that generation was that we know about in the Old Testament? It's Daniel. It's Daniel. It was Daniel that most likely watched revival take place as a really young boy. It was Daniel that probably saw King Josiah do all the reforms. It was Daniel who probably saw the prophet Jeremiah weeping. It was Daniel who grew up during a time where his education, his spiritual formation was unbelievably rich. How did, how did the nation of Judah walk faithfully in the midst of Babylon? It was they saw King Josiah turn the people back to the Lord. We have no idea what seeds of revival we are placing right here and right now for the future. Amen, church? We have no idea the people that will be impacted 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, because of your faithfulness, no matter what goes on in our society and our culture, a willingness of people that are willing to walk faithful, faithfully no matter the cost. But I will tell you this, is that it's amazing to me when I look around in our church, 15 years old, and I was reminded by one of our worship leader servants, he said, I've only been a part of this church for a short amount of time, but like 15 years ago, this church started, and yet we have people like Blake who's serving on the worship team. He wasn't even born yet. My own kids are serving in Jesus' church. They weren't even born yet. And so the seeds of revival that we're called to be committed to, we have no idea what the future holds, but I will tell you this. As I look at the next generation, as I look and see what God is up to, and as I know about God and his faithfulness in my own life, and as I look around in our church, I have a whole lot of hope, you guys. A whole lot of hope. Because Jesus says in the end, there'll come a day, I will wipe all the tears. There'll be no more pain. And it's that day we all long for. So I want to ask you, as we wrap up, if you want revival, you have to be personally committed to the seeds of revival. And where do those seeds of revival come from? Can you show that Mark Sayers quote, Debbie? Do you have that? Personal renewals 
begin in the hidden places, often driven by solitary prayer, self-examination, communion with God, fasting, and the habits of secrecy, the uprooting of sinful patterns, and confessions with trusted leaders and pastors. Eventually, this inner change of the heart will overflow out into our external lives, creating a potential for renewal in the social world around us. So are you willing to be committed to tear down the high places, to repair personal corporate worship, to rediscover and obey God's word in your life, to walk a path of hearing, observing, reflecting, discussing, obeying? Are you willing to commit to the sacred rhythms that God called us to so many years ago? And if we are, revival is coming. Whether it's in this generation or generations to come. As we go to a time of communion, I want to invite you just to spend time with Jesus this morning and ask the question, Lord, what, what is it you desire for me? And what is the next step? And I just want to invite you to have a conversation with Jesus. And if you came this morning, you didn't receive the elements and you want to take communion now, just raise your hand. These amazing servants would love to bless you with the elements. Anybody? Everybody got the elements. There's one. All right. I want to invite you just to reflect on, on that this morning. What is the need? What is the next step that Jesus is calling on you to take? And I just want to invite this to you this morning. If you need to talk to someone about the, the pain that you're going through in life, whether that's pain that you have no control over or whether it is something that you know you need to confess, you know that you've got sin that you need to talk about. I know any of our elders, any of our staff, myself included, like we would love to pray with you and we'd love to walk beside you and we'd love to point you to the person that's gonna bring wholeness to you today. So spend time with the Lord this morning as we think about what is next for us as we walk with him. Let's pray.